is a bit warmer than the test a couple of hours ago mist is rising we've got uh, a little bit more sunshine and the birds are singing and this is the introduction to Orm uh, I'm not going to go into really a, an academic treatise this is going to be more uh, visualization uh, before I get into anything I'll, I'd like to show you this I love to show this at the beginning uh, of any time I talk about Orm uh, this here sort of thing you can pick up uh, in the touristy shops gift shops and people love these they can be on slates on pieces of wood on cane and even boards of sex uh, sex uh, sticks of uh, that you can throw around like the arrow sticks uh, with the I Ching and so we got home sweet home uh, it's a sort of lovely gift and uh, you read this one with the Orm from the bottom upwards that's pretty good the Orm home there repeated but this one uh, <laughs> they've got an F here for, uh, for the order so that isn't sweet because there isn't a W in the Orm it's the feet well I'm not surprised it was an Anglo-Saxon that sold this anyway but the reason I bring this one up is uh, it really announces the way that a lot of people look at Orm today uh, they love people love playing games of translating things back into the Orm alphabet they look at the some sort of reference or a chart of the letters that are symbolic for the various trees and shrubs and they put their own names in they put the names of cottage name where they live they put all sorts of things that in to try and translate translate that out but to me uh, it's uh, it's a sort of same thinking same interpretation as a lot of science fiction if you get something like Star Trek, Dan Dare, uh, Blake 7, uh, Doctor Who they go like a million miles, a, mil a million light years out into space they land on a planet for some reason that planet's only got one village and one town and lo and behold they go into the village or the town and everybody starts speaking back to them in Shakespearean English and that's how I sort of uh, think of this it's like going onto a planet and suddenly there's Shakespeare in English is that going to happen I'm not sure the Orm itself and the symbolism is obviously far far older uh, than any translation that we can do in our Latinized the sort of Greek Latin origin uh, language so more than an academic uh, bit of a chat and a waffle just now is inspire you into a bit of imagination a bit of visualization about it um, because we're familiar we communicate I'm talking to you in a sort of an English uh, language I suppose and it's got to us through maybe the Chinese doing some sort of well they did a, a kind of vertical language uh, but the horizontal languages left to right right to left uh, that's come through Babylonians, Persians, uh, Hittites, through to the Greeks, through to the Latin. So this is what we're familiar with and uh, we have the delight that I can ramble away to you here. You can pretty much understand what I'm saying because it's a duplicated language. You went to school, you learned to read and write and we have this incredible luxury of communication to billions of people that not so many hundred years ago wasn't possible. Now imagine if you go back to before the scribes, before those early medieval scribes 
and there was an oral language. And think of where that oral language came from and how was it actually duplicated, how was it actually shared from person to person and then go back to the human race even further back than that. How did people manage to talk to one another? Uh, I suppose the earliest we've seen of people scribing are these ancient cave paintings and they look beautiful and it's as if someone had a sort of artistic flair. This is the way we interpret it because I think um, when we look at ancient things we interpret ancient things according to our culture now and somehow we don't spend time maybe imagining ourselves back in the ancient moment and how would we be, we, you know, time travel ourselves into that moment? How would we be if we have to communicate with people, if we have to use tools and do all these different things? And it's, uh, I love uh, playing with that. It's very difficult because once we've learned to read and write, we're stuck with that language. It's going to be haunting us in silence. But if we try and eliminate that in some way and not have that, then the only thing we've got to go on uh, for communication really is our senses. Because one thing about ancient people is they could see, they could hear, they could touch, they could smell. So how does that all come together as a language that you can actually share with another person? So maybe the family worked out a bunch of grunts and groans that they could use to communicate with one another, but the next door neighbors wouldn't have a clue what uh, uh, what they were saying. Now, talking about um, I was going a million light years away, landing on a planet, and everybody's speaking Shakespearean English, in a lot of these science fiction stories, if those people from a, a million light years away, he came and visited us. For some reason, they don't seem to land and speak in Shakespearean language. They use telepathy. And we kind of look at telepathy as a mysterious thing. What is telepathy? Uh, when it comes over on drama, the telepathy is this hidden voice in our head. And for some reason, that hidden voice is actually Shakespearean English, isn't it? But what if telepathy was somehow a communication of senses, of uh, being able to make some sort of reference of what to see, what to hear, uh, and uh, touch, smell, taste. Is, if that is possible, a guidance towards that, a telepathic guidance towards our using our senses and synthesizing our, our senses. So what's the next step after that? Because there is this desperation to actually communicate something we feel. Well, there's the cave paintings, I suppose. Cave paintings, people think, oh, amazing artists went into the caves, they did these drawings of animals, of people, and of situations. But when you think of that time when there was no language, was this a form of a memo? Was this a form of archiving as a message for other people to actually look at? And somehow you could actually talk to your neighbors because you can show yourself uh, killing off a hog and, oh yeah, oh, this is a place where there's hogs. So you've actually managed to communicate some information. One of the things that's fascinating, that fascinates me with uh, the Orm is its association of being the language of trees. I'm going to do a Sunday session that goes more into the language of trees. 
but there is some indication of an association of trees to different I suppose rites of passage uh, through our life, the understanding of ourselves, understanding of the relationship with other people, understanding the weather, understanding the ebb and flow that's going. And so it's as if a language built up that, okay, this tree symbolizes that, but how can you actually turn that into a language? Very difficult to take people for a walk to a bunch of trees to try and get a sentence out because half the trees that's in the sentence probably isn't in the area you're going for a walk from. So I, it's as, for the convenience, um, maybe they could bring back sticks from these various trees that have this symbol, uh, such as willow, uh, as being an explanation of the conduit between the moon and water, and uh, to uh, explain the changing weather, changing feelings, whatever it was. So bring back some sticks of willow and some leaves. That's easier than going round to the actual trees. So I suppose taking these and doing this, I should have prepared this in advance, but it was just something I thought of a few seconds ago. So suddenly uh, they've got these sticks and they've got these leaves and it looks as if possibly some genius thought of uh, the idea of, okay, if we can use these, maybe we can say something uh, by just uh, playing around with these and uh, making some sort of it. And then if you could actually associate different arrangements um, like this, uh, if you could do that, and you could teach someone that. Something is actually happening. You're educating a duplicated kind of language. And then the key word here, I think, is education, that you're teaching someone. And if these people go on to teach other people, there is a whole new culture developing, which is education. There's bumblebees here, fascinating. And education in itself, one thing that's obviously going to happen then, there's going to be people who learnt that language with the sticks, and there's going to be people who didn't. And I can imagine that could be the seeding of a kind of a class separation, those that learn and those that haven't. And so those that are learning, they become academic and this goes on to other issues. And eventually those people were kind of separated to form universities of some form. And the people that were out on the land, they were providing for these people at the university so they could carry on with their studies and give some sort of leadership and order because the people who hadn't learned that stuff would think that perhaps they were doing something that was magical and was uh, mystical. I'm also trying to think of that Welsh story, was it, uh, oh I can't think of the character, you probably know it offhand, I'm trying to think of the one, was it Gwyneth, uh, the person who led a bunch of trees. <laughs> it was a sort of an upset, it's a Welsh story, it was an upset that uh, there was the rulership of the, I suppose Norman started, maybe it was Saxon, kind of laws, actual laws of judgment that was very different to the Breton laws that the people were familiar with and uh, it was somehow this was altering uh, how the land was operated. Trees were being brought down for various projects so uh, 
Oh, I wish I remember the name, is it Gwyneth or anyway, led a whole bunch of trees to invade the underworld to stop what was going on that was actually stopping the growth of trees. And uh, in that story, each of those trees had a different strength. And when you got all these different strengths of trees together, they unified into a complete whole that was very much a life-saving, I suppose you would say, battle. So the album is quite uh, odd in that you won't find there's actually books, there's no manuscripts where it's, it's actually an Oum script. And thinking of the cave paintings where animals were drawn up and various symbols, it, it looks like someone had the initiative to miniaturize all of these and out come these symbolic languages where symbols were chained together and each symbol had a sound, but when it was chained together, you were starting to get words. And this was happening in Babylonian language, in Persian language, Hittite language, Egyptian. Eventually the Greeks started sorting it out. And so you'd get things like a bird and uh, a pig, a, a hog, uh, maybe next to a spiral. So there was uh, all kinds of geological symbols. And they'd all be lined up and they could be read because they had uh, distinctive sounds. Uh, this was forming a linear language though, this was, was starting this up from these symbols. And drawing a bird and drawing all these things must have been really time consuming. So someone invented shorthand for that, just as a squiggle for a bird maybe, a uh, straight line for a fish. And suddenly we, the Greeks were putting this together to form a linear language and then we had Latin and then we got the Latinized languages, the Teutonic languages and we got to the linear languages that we're writing now and the linear languages that, was, that were brought in by the scribes and made popular and were huge collateral in the early medieval times. So the Orm never sort of made it uh, into a, a, a linear language that we could write stories. It, and so it carried a mystery because what was it used for? Um, it's just short. You're familiar, uh, most of you watching this will be familiar with the Orm stones. And obviously uh, Orm was probably scribed out in wood, uh, maybe on bark, uh, but they would have sort of rotted away. But stone, uh, it actually stands there. And the, and the most common feature we see when we get that is they read from the bottom up and you try taking those and you got you got the letters you got this translation beside you and you start applying the letters to the, all these carvings that are on the ormstone and all you come out with is gobbledygook at most times sometimes it comes out as a name that you're familiar with Maeve for instance or Fergus and to me if, if you can actually translate if if those own symbols come out to something that actually makes sense to you as a word. In my mind, I think that's graffiti because um, well, really Orm in a form was actually used as a serious form for identification of people and boundaries uh, up until I think the 1930s. So in one breath I might say graffiti, in another breath, it's, it was really a sort of serious marking, a serious sort of archiving. And it's, it looks like that all through time, like the churches, have had a change of use uh, through that time. 
One of the uses that fascinates me, and one of the ways I think it was taught, is that once a symbol, a tree had been applied to a symbol, it, it took on a sound. And that was very important. So you, the memory was what sound is it for each of the Orm symbols. And the classic set is 20 symbols. And uh, so you've got four acmes, four groups. Each acme has five symbols. And each of those notes uh, in those um, acmes uh, would form what I assume is a pentatonic scale. You've got four acmes of pentatonic scale. So you actually, if you were singing those in order to communicate them, you would be coming out with what was the origin of blues, maybe jazz, certainly chanting music. And, uh, and, that, and people did do chanting music as a way of remembering things uh, and to recharge them in some way. So I think the earliest Owen was really there for bringing sounds together. And I do feel that when the uh, priests actually sing the masses, that their origin comes from singing the Orm. That type of thing that it was sung. And even the story of Columkeel, uh, when he uh, scribed, did a, a scribing at Moville uh, there of manuscript, which actually brought him to the courts of Tara. Uh, one of the folklore stories there was the reason he scribed that down and took a copy uh, is that the the actual manuscript itself was accompanied with Orm symbols um, because it was said to be a manuscript of the Psalms. So the Psalms themselves would be sung and how do you sing them? You just follow the Orm that was at the top and because of the education that Colin Keel had and what especially Later on, the education he, that he picked up when he was on Iona, which is another long story, I think I might avoid that one for this Sunday session. Uh, it was something that he was very interested in, something he was very passionate about, because his, he wanted to teach like a bard. Uh, whilst he was in his own education, he made an association with a Saxon bard, Gemmon, who actually taught him various bardic skills. And the bardic skills would have included perhaps what we know as the Orm. But there was a symbol language from the people that we now call the Picts. And what their origin is, I'm not so sure of, but it was something they actually scribed down long before the Gaels did. I forget the, what the sequence is now, but my first, uh, my first sort of education of the Ohm was actually on Iona, where I learned about uh, how the the, the Gaels uh, came together with the Picts and their cultures entangled. And the Ohm came out of that because of their wisdom of the trees and the sounds of the trees can, they found could combine uh, with the symbolism that was carried uh, by the Picts. And so there was a sort of memorized uh, understanding from that. Uh, again, I, I could waffle on for that ages. I'm trying to keep this short, <laughs> keep, uh, keeping it uh, within the half hour. But it's, uh, it, it's worth uh, looking into the way that was carried. Uh, moving forward, oh yes, I better stick with that. The one thing about the stones that we see with the carvings is that uh, 
one of the uses or change of uses maybe it was for sounds to start with but the change of uses seemed to be to mark boundaries and that was a purpose that stayed on until perhaps the 1930s uh, over hundreds of years but you've probably heard folklore tales of the billy trees and the billy tree was almost like the flag uh, of the clan and uh, and the tree they would have the special tree the oak or the elm or the ash and that was precious that was a flag that the kind of this is the territory of the so-and-so clan and this was a warning to anybody else from other clans about where they were and it was like a signpost to where they were and it was also a kind of warning and I get the impression that maybe they kept getting chopped down by other clans in, uh, that turned into battles and that would have been disastrous because it was like stealing and burning the flag. But I get the impression that Orm actually took on that role as well. That, that the Orm was used for boundary posts. That it was sort of not only informing this is the land of so-and-so, so-and-so. But, you know, watch out. You're here at your own risk. Uh, come as a friend. Uh, but uh, it was done sort of as a flag and what the, and but what other clans used to do it seems is steal these stones they would dig them up and they would take them and they would actually plot them on their own land and i was looking around uh, the grounds of uh, uh, oh dear how can i be brain dead on that one uh anyway in the in the grounds of this uh, it's a big tourist village them. I can't remember. Anyway, in the grounds of this, they got a huge collection of these Oam stones, and these Oam stones have been taken. Adair, Adair is the village, and these Oam stones are obviously come from places like Cork and Kerry, and have been sort of collected up. So they would be like uh, trophies. And in my mind, what this reminded me of, if this was marking boundaries, is the way that dogs that uh, they mark their boundaries by peeing on trees to warn other dogs look I've taken this as my territory beware uh, when you enter so I kind of related to that as being pissing stones I did actually write a poem about that that's called pissing on stones how did that ormstone arrive here fascinating notches there to tell us something and a dog lifting his leg to piss on it is that the mystery of these stones revealed Nothing to do with sacred alignments, nothing to do with enforced ownership, but a spot where a human pissed and erected a totem of his strength and claimed the presence of his tribe. I doubt that Ormstones seen today are in the positions they were when they were first erected, but they are battle trophies like seizing an opponent's flag. I think I'll leave that subject and move on to the Book of Ballymote, and that is a huge reference uh, as regarding modern on interpretation today. And we're moving right forward from the early, me uh, early medieval when the whole industry of scribing came in, uh, which became a huge industry. A lot of people talk of that now when they visit, that this was the conversion to Christianity. No, it's just the content of uh, what became the Bible was something valuable to scribe and it was the actual scribing industry itself that was huge and it was like gold it was as if a clan or a tribe 
Their wealth was measured on the books they could create rather than gold. I suppose you're familiar that our economy is supposed to be based on, if, like in Ireland, if everybody's money could be all gathered and piled together, it should be equal to the amount of gold that's in reserves. Of course, it doesn't work that way these days because money is actually just printed. And back in those days, the value uh, of a community seemed to be based on the books that were representing them. That was their classical, that was their wealth. And the cattle, of course, was representative of this, the value of uh, their cattle. All the trading seemed to be based on the literature. Hard to imagine at the moment. But if we go to the late, uh, late medieval, I think it was about 13... It was uh, 1390 uh, in Ballymote. There was a huge scriptorium of many scribes and uh, the, the bard or scribe manager then or whatever he was called, um, he was Manus Dignan and he looked after the scribes and uh, the, they were kind of funded, supported uh, by uh, the I'm trying to think, was it the McDonough's or the McDermott's? It was McDonough's for Ballymote, uh, they, uh, Ballymote Castle. And so the, these scribes were really building up, I suppose, their literature vault, their scholarly vault, their university, I suppose you would say. And what they did, because it was uh, one of the later books, is that there was manuscripts that were held by both the McDermott's and the McDonough's. And it was almost like how the Bible was. It was a load of manuscripts stitched together. So this was a book uh, that stitched stuff together, and it was all kinds of ancient stories. Uh, and at that time, Ballymote was the centre. Uh, there was no County Sligo then. Uh, it was the um, Tour de Coran. And Coran the harper, this famous story is about him. And even the type of harp, the angular harp he played, was a Coran. And the Coran was the name of the Rowan, which was the main wood for the frame of his harp. Lots of fascinating uh, folklore stories around him. So uh, that, uh, the area was named after that. So there we have a strong bard, poetic, harper link already just in the name of the area, Tour de Coran. Uh, so this was strong and it would have been a strong representation for the rest of what's now Ireland. Uh, and one of the lead characters from this area was Cormac McCart. And Cormac McCart, uh, probably the most famous of the High Kings of Tara, probably the longest serving High King of Tara and a lot of his stories seem to link up, seem to be very similar to King Arthur of Glastonbury of Britain. So there's all kinds of stories about him but uh, Fimbacool's in there, Cucullan's in there, uh, all kinds of ancient stories and uh, Coran himself, uh, the stories of him said to be the son of Doida or Dagda as a lot of you say and was also commissioned as the bard of Dionset, the healer from the uh, Song Well, which is supposed to be Heapstown Ken, which uh, is at the west of Loch Arrow. So uh, there was a great association. Now what comes out in the Ballymalt, Book of Ballymalt, is reference to the bards and the order of bards and uh, the instructions of bards. So there's quite a bit about the work and the meaning of bards in there and they do represent this information 
with a written reference of the Orm alphabet and when people study the Orm that's where they actually get to. And what they do find is it goes beyond the 20 symbols that people reference to mainly and you've got five extra symbols that are quite bizarre. They're not, they're not like straight sticks like this. They go into very unique looking symbols. You've got one that almost looks like someone playing hangman which is the Yulin or Ellen and the elbow and of course the on pipes is the elbow pipes although some people oh what does that represent now um the Ellen uh, in the actual uh, meaning i'm trying to think it's not so it's not so much strength and it's not earache uh <laughs> uh trying to think what it uh, represents but there has been an association someone tried to put beach but then three of these out of these five new symbols people have put beach to and the beach arrived in Ireland well after this was scribed so I don't think we can go into that so some people have replaced uh, that uh, with the um, oh a little tiny tree oh I'm really going brain dead with this sorry about this uh, you get it by the side of the water um, it's, a, it's a native woodland it's a native wood of here it's not the sickle, oh, it might come back to me uh, later. And another one anyway is the, um, it, it's kind of in a diamond shape. Uh, and uh, that one, uh, that's uh, represented uh, as gold. Uh, Orch is uh, the name of it. And it has been represented by gold. And that's supposed to be symbolic of calmness. Uh, and of passion and relaxation and that over time has been translated as honeysuckle and the smell of honeysuckle but these don't come into the regular uh, 20 uh, that we discuss but it's fascinating to follow that uh, along now as far as Ulm and the Bards there's another story but when the Bards were actually forced under the um, the British or English law and customs it meant suppression of the Brehan language and it also meant new rules for the bards of what they can and what they cannot do and it meant that the old culture uh, had changed and they didn't like that at all so it's said that the bards actually held on to the Orm uh, as a way of a language of sending secret messages to each other it was a simple shorthand and there are folklore stories I, I, I showed the sticks but I heard that the first Orm was taught by um, by Dagder and Kian's brother Orma hence why I've got Orma's Tale of the Trees uh, in my book here and it said the way that he taught wasn't necessarily with the sticks but uh, used it as sign language and uh, yeah, something like that you get a uh, you get to know I'm single, but how the heck do you get five fingers over that? Maybe it's because they had longer fingers then, maybe. But uh, I kind of struggle with that. But one of the stories of the bars, the secret messaging that they do, was that they actually used sign language with their hands to actually communicate the orm. And there was something in that communication that kept the culture of the bars together but what they were communicating I do not know it could be within our mystery of what we regard as telepathy 
so there's a lot we don't know about that, but that's the folklore of it. It was a secret language that the bards, that had been suppressed by the New English laws, uh, how they used to communicate and managed to keep together their old tradition uh, in secret. And it's almost the bards equivalent of the penal times of the Catholic Church. I'll finish this off uh, with what we're doing today with Orm. A lot of people are fascinating using the Orm uh, as a form of divination. And uh, they kind of link it up in a way uh, with the I Ching. And you can understand uh, the links with the I Ching because the I Ching throwing a, a bunch of yarrow rods together and then forming a reading uh, from that, which is what a lot of people do today. You look at the I Ching, you look at the Orm, you can see comparisons. You look at the runes and you look at the Orm and you can see comparisons. One of the modern uses, and it's fun I suppose, I don't quite understand it myself, is where it's substituted astrology. So that the whole year with astrology is split up into 12 signs uh, some people have come along and they've invented a way to actually bring in 20 signs through the year with very confusing dates of when they start and when they finish. And uh, each of those has a, uh, is assigned an Om symbol and the tree and an interpretation of the character of that person. I've not really gone into that in depth, so I don't know how they work with that in the same way as astrology deals with transits and progressions of planets. I don't know how what the uh, you'd have to get another book on that to see how they do that with the Om. It sounds like it could be very confusing. But anyway, they've done that, and I think that's certainly multiplied during this time of the social media, and it's it did multiply a bit during the Guru era of the early 70s. But it's actually been around since uh, when printing presses became something that, that was bought in mass because uh, during the 1800s the printing presses were getting lighter, uh, they were getting smaller and they were getting inexpensive and by 1840 there were people had small printing presses in if they had guard sheds and they were operating and by that time they could even be steam operated and it wasn't long before they were electric operated or they'd be hand operated and pedal operated and they these people made their money uh, not by doing newspapers because investigative journalism wasn't really that big by them but by coming up with loads of these folklore tidbits and publishing them and rewriting them and publishing them and it was quite a hobby with people to get into groups uh, with these broadsheets as they called them and actually try and reenact them so it became a whole new culture. There was Ouija boards, there was clairvoyance, there was people doing mama's plays, they were telling uh, vamped up stories uh, of the Tour de Don and, and so forth. So a lot of the stories we picked up today came from this whole new Celtic romantic trend that really started escalating within groups from about 1840, I think, before the Great uh, War, uh, up to 1910. So I think we picked up a lot on those, and the divination of the Orm has come from that. But I think uh, to finish this off is to reflect on how to approach this as a sensory language. 
how it came out to the senses. So if you're in your garden, you're in the wood, if you have a labyrinth, think of that time, see if your mind can eliminate the linear language that you've got. And suddenly all the language you've got is your senses and you come out of that. And how can you actually explain your senses with just a few sticks? And if you do that, you'll probably pick up the mystery of these aliens from a hundred light, a million light years away who came, come here or may have came here and talked to us telepathically. And if you could understand what that telepathic sensory language is, then I think you've got the origin within yourself that inspired the creation of the OM and teaching other people with it. So that's my introduction to the OM. I hope it wasn't too much of a ramble. It was very much off the cuff. And uh, Spindle, you remember I was saying? <laughs> oh dear, it takes a long time to come back to Spindle. When I was talking about the, um, the, uh, the, the Book of Ballymote symbol, the extra one that looked like a bit of a hangman, and uh, was the Ellen uh, 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 elbow, it actually be, had the spindle associated. So that's another new fact. So I, I trust you enjoyed this. I hope you'll take every opportunity of enjoying this time of being able to indulge in your gardens and your writing and your creativity. I hope you haven't had people affected by this virus going round, but do live full to the day and, uh, and be relaxed. Uh, and enjoy what you have and take this opportunity of this time that you've perhaps been yearning for a long time. I look forward to you joining me next week. I'm actually going into food sovereignty is the subject next week. I'll probably be indoors for that one. So have a wonderful Sunday for the rest of the time or if you're listening later. Have a wonderful day, whatever it is. Thank you. Bye. Bye.